Does Christmas make you say, wow? This time of year can be a time filled with nostalgia. That is good. And it can be a time of year filled with rejoicing as we have some time to celebrate the holidays and get together with friends and families. But does Christmas make you say, wow? And if it doesn't, maybe it's because you don't get truly, fully, what Christmas is truly all about. And in our text this morning, we're going to look at one of those Old Testament prophecies, speaking of the coming of the Messiah, that if understood rightly, will make us say, wow. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We began a four-part series last Sunday titled, His Name Shall Be Called. And there are four names for Christ found in this one verse, and we're taking them one at a time. Last week we saw uh, where this verse calls Jesus Wonderful Counselor. And we talked about that title for Christ and all that it means. And this morning we're going to look at the next name given, Mighty God. Mighty God. Jesus here is clearly called God. And it is interesting and moving to see. So look there with me, Isaiah Chapter 9, verse 6, I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, which is truth with no mixture of error. I'm grateful this morning for my Bible. How about you? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. Here it is. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, it is such a privilege to gather as a faith family to... Lord, to focus upon you, our great God, and to give you the worship and the praise that you alone deserve. We are grateful, Lord, that we, through the finished work of Christ, can be in the presence of the great I Am. Wow, what a privilege, what a joy. And I pray, Lord, that as we study your word, you would move in our midst by your Spirit, that we would, Lord, further understand what it means that Jesus is declared mighty God. Father, would you move in such a way today that in our heart of hearts, we would say, wow. And we'll thank you and praise you, Lord, for that grace. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. 
we jumped right into the middle of the ninth chapter of Isaiah, which is an extended section of Scripture that speaks of one that God would send who would come to be a redeemer and a ruler. In fact, he would come to rule forever. His kingdom would never come to an end. It says that as we continue to read in chapter 9, specifically verse 7. And this ruler whom God would give would come to his people as a child. In other words, he would first be experienced as a child, a son who would be given. And Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is the prophecy of this son, son of God, son of man, who is a forever king. And the four titles found in this verse foreshadow what kind of king he would be. So again, we looked at Wonderful Counselor last week. This week we're looking at the title Mighty God. Next week we're going to talk about how Jesus, who is not God the Father, he's God the Son, can be called Everlasting Father. So show up for that one next week and we'll chat about that one. But this morning I want to focus in on that title, Mighty God. In the Hebrew it is the title El, which is a term for God, and Gabor, which is a title for might or for strength. I want to give you three aspects of this name for Christ. First of all, this name speaks of his person. This name speaks of his person. Now again, verse 6 is a verse that was written uh, 700 years before Christ even walked upon the earth. And yet, we see with specificity that he would come as a child who would be born. And we see what his character and nature would consist of. It says there, a child is born, a son is given, the government shall rest upon his shoulder. In other words, he would, uh, he would take on the rule and reign of all of creation. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, El Gabor, Mighty God. Now we learn a couple of things from this one verse that are supported in other places in Scripture. First of all, we learn that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. It says there he is called Mighty God. Mighty God. So Jesus Christ is fully God. He is not part God or he is not a creation of God. He is God himself. He is fully God. And we know that this title speaks of deity because uh, in chapter 10, this same title is applied to the Lord, the divine name of God. So the title that is applied to uh, the Lord, uh, Yahweh, is applied here to Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Godhead. So Jesus Christ is fully God. It calls him mighty God. Now, of course, you see this in other places in Scripture. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, well, who is the Word? Well, in verse 14 of John 1, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, clearly speaking of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ in John 1 is called God. Uh, over in uh, John chapter 20, after... Thomas had doubted that Jesus Christ was really resurrected. He was brought into a room, and doubting Thomas sees Jesus alive from the dead. And Jesus shows Thomas his nail prints in his hand and uh, the spear 
mark in his side. And when Thomas understands that Jesus Christ really did die and really was resurrected, he cries out, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not God. He receives his worship. And there are other places in Scripture that clearly speak to the fact that Jesus is fully God. Not only that, Jesus is fully man. Look what it says in verse 6. For to us a child is born. A child is born. That speaks of his humanity. He was born of the Virgin Mary. A child is born. And so, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, eternal God, left heaven and came to earth taking on humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So that when he was born, he was born as fully God and fully man. So Jesus Christ had both natures, humanity and divinity. And and those natures were united in the one person, Theologians call this the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union speaks of the union of Christ's human and divine natures in one person or being. There's a, there's a mystery there. There's a wonder. There's a majesty in that Jesus is one, and yet in his person he is fully God and fully man. As we say in the well-loved hymn, In Christ Alone, Jesus, uh, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, was fullness of God. In helpless babe. Think about that. Fullness of God in helpless babe. Mighty God is given to humanity as a child who would be born. Born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. J.I. Packer says that Jesus is God with God coming to us as God from God. And so we learn that this name speaks of his person. And we see this this uniting of the two natures in one person, in Christ, all throughout the Scriptures. We don't think in these terms often, but when you see it unfold uh, in the life and ministry of Christ, it is thrilling to see. For example, in his humanity, Jesus Christ in in bodily form, ascended to the Father. The Bible speaks of him being at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? They, they, the, the, the disciples saw him in his body ascend into heaven, right? In his humanity. And yet in his deity, Jesus Christ is everywhere. He could say, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He could say, wherever two or three are gathered together, I am there in their midst. Why? Because he is fully man and fully God. In his humanity, we see Jesus living to 33 years of age and then dying and resurrected in bodily form. They they recognize him, so he probably looked like a 33-year-old man in his resurrected body. And yet in his divinity, he is eternal. No beginning and no ending. He's always existed. He will always exist. Amen? But we see both both natures there in one person. In his humanity, we see Jesus in a boat asleep, tired, weary from ministry, 
and a storm comes and wind blows and the waves are raised up and the disciples know they are in danger on that sea. So they wake Jesus up and Jesus, fully human, stands up and as fully God says, peace be still. The wind of the waves die down. So right there in that one story, we see Jesus asleep, fully human, but Jesus commanding the created order, fully God. And we see it all throughout the Bible. And so this verse, uh, verse 6 of Isaiah 9, written 700 years before Jesus Christ walked upon the earth, tells us he would be mighty God but given to us as a child, Full, fullness of God in helpless babe. There's another reality that this name speaks of. Not only does it speak of his person, it speaks of his purpose. Look in verse 6. It says, his name should be called, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Which leads us to this question. Why did the mighty God come to us as a helpless child? Why did he lay aside the rights and prerogatives of deity? Philippians 2 says he emptied himself and took on humanity. The, the, the limitations of humanity, the, the helplessness of a baby in his mother's arms. Why did he do that? Why did the, the second person of the Godhead, who's always existed, leave heaven and take on flesh in the womb of Mary? Well, let me give you some answers to those questions. And if we answer these questions rightly, I think we'll see why Isaiah 9 verse 6 is so wonderful. First of all, the human and divine natures of Christ are necessary for redemption. Let me say it like this. If Jesus Christ were not, listen, if he were not fully God and fully man, he could not save you. He had to be fully God and fully man to be our Savior. They were necessary for redemption. say, wait, why is that? Why do you have to be fully God and fully man to be our Savior? Well, as a man, Christ could represent man and die as a man. Over 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that Jesus became sin for us. As a human, he took on the sins of all of humanity and died in the place of other humans. You know, God is a God of perfect justice. And if his wrath against humanity because we've sinned against him is going to be satisfied just as calls for someone who is human to take that wrath in our place he had to be man to die in our place he had to be man to represent you and me humans right not only that as god the death of christ could have infinite value to pay our infinite debt against a holy god now now think about this God is not only, and it's important to think of for a moment, this is critical, God is not only holy, He is infinitely holy. That means His holiness knows no boundaries. It goes on and on and on and on and on in His perfection and His total unique moral majesty. So, when we sin against an infinitely holy God, you know what we deserve? Infinite unending punishment. That's why hell never ends. That's why it goes on and on and on and on. Because we deserve everlasting, infinite punishment because we've sinned against an everlasting, infinitely holy God. So, if you and I are going to be saved, if, if our debt's going to be paid for, 
someone who is infinite himself would have to pay for it. And Jesus, as fully God, has an infinite nature so that his death on the cross could pay that debt. A debt that you and I could not pay. So he had to be fully man to represent you and me on the cross. And he had to be fully God to pay it all. All to him I owe. Over in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it speaks of the value of the precious blood of Christ. Infinite value, dying for our sin. So, as fully man, Jesus could be our substitute. As fully God, Jesus could be our sacrifice. As fully man, Jesus could take our place. As fully God, Jesus could pay the price. You see that? That's why it's so critical that this mighty God in Isaiah 9-6 comes to us as a child born of the Virgin Mary. I use the discipleship journal Bible reading plan in my personal Bible reading time. And I love it, and I'm going to talk some more about that in the coming weeks, particularly the new year. I'm going to talk a lot about Bible reading plans and some, some habits of holiness, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But I, but I use the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan, and I love it because uh, every day in my Bible Reading Plan, you read from four different places in Scripture, two places in the Old Testament, two places in the New Testament, and you begin to see the connections uh, between the Old and the New, the, the prophecies, the fulfillments, the, the foreshadowings, and, and the realities in the New Testament. And it's just beautiful to make those connections as I read through that plan every year. I, I just love it. And sometimes those connections are very, very explicit. For example, last month I was reading in the book of Job. You know the story of Job. Job was suffering, right? I mean, he had lost everything, and, and he didn't understand why. He didn't know the backstory, And so he's wondering why he's going through suffering, and his friends aren't helping any. His friends keep saying, Job, you did something wrong, buddy. You need to fess up. And, and his friends had no category for unexplained suffering, and they had really poor theology. And, and Job is under the weight of his suffering and under the weight of his friends' accusations, and, and he's thinking to himself, he's, he's even declaring, if I could just have an audience with God, if I could just talk to him and, 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 and understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. And in Job 9, 32 and 33, here's what he says. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Listen, he says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So Job is saying, I wish there was someone who could relate to me, human, and have his hand on my life and relate to God, divine, and, and bring us together. So I read that that morning. And then the next passage I read was found in 1 John Chapter 2. You know what that verse says? If anyone does sin, listen, he has an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the propitiation for our sins. The, the longing in Job and in chapter 9, the Old Testament, was fulfilled in Christ. 
fully God, fully man, he, he places his hand on us and his hand on the Lord and, and, and brings us together as our mediator, as our advocate, as the one who took care of our sin debts. Aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man? He had to be. So this verse 6 of Isaiah 9 speaks of his purpose. Mighty God coming to us as a child. He had to be fully God and man to be our Savior. But there's a final reality I want you to see related to this name. This name speaks of his person. This name speaks of his purpose. But third, this name speaks of his power. El Gabor. El, again, a name for God. Gabor, strong, mighty. And it's applied to this person who is called God. Mighty God, strong God. It could be even translated superior God. It's a, it's a powerful word applied to Jesus Christ. Theologians would say that this verse refers to the omnipotence the omnipotence of Christ. You know what the word omnipotence means? Two parts, omnipotence. It, it means all-powerful. That's what that word means. And we need to understand the Bible clearly teaches that God is all-powerful because Jesus Christ is God himself. He is all-powerful. Amen? All power at his disposal. Psalm 62, 11. I love this verse. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. What? That power belongs to God. God is not striving for power. He's not acquiring power. He, in and of himself, just has power. He possesses full power. It's always perfectly at his disposal. So this title, Mighty God, speaks of his power. Where do we see the power of Christ manifest? Well, we see that he is the one that has the power to redeem. The power to redeem. Jesus Christ left heaven, took on human flesh as fully man and fully God. He perfectly obeyed the law. He never committed a sin. He said no to the devil's temptations. He lived a perfect life. And of his own volition, he went to the cross and shed his precious blood so that he could pay the infinite sin debt that you and I owe. He died on the cross for our sins. But listen to me, a dead man can't give people eternal life. If that was the end of the story, we'd all be in trouble, right? He died on the cross, but, but on the third day, early on Sunday morning, which by the way, that's why we worship on Sunday mornings. We're, we are a resurrection people. On Sunday morning, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he is alive today. He showed his power over sin on the cross. He showed his power over death when he rose from the grave. He has, as fully God and fully man, the power to redeem sinners like you and me. So how does he show his power? Power to redeem. Also, he has power to reign. The Bible says that after he rose from the grave, he spent some time on the earth with his disciples, and then he ascended to the Father. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. One day he will return and set everything right. 
But even now, he's reigning. You know what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, or Ephesians chapter 1? It says that the earth is his footstool. The earth is his footstool. He is reigning over creation. He's reigning over humanity. He's reigning over history. He is in charge. He is sovereign. He is in control. He reigns perfectly. And when it's all said and done, every knee will bow before the reigning King Jesus. And every tongue will confess that the reigning King Jesus is Lord of all. He has the power to reign. John Calvin writes, with good reason does he call him strong or mighty, speaking of Isaiah chapter 9. Because our contest is with the devil, death and sin. Enemies, listen, too powerful and strong by whom we would be immediately vanquished if the strength of Christ had not rendered us invincible. Jesus Christ is mighty God. Because of that, he has the power to redeem and the power to Rain. So that brings us back to you and to me. Christmas. Is Christmas just holiday cheer and warm nostalgia? Or does Christmas make you say, wow, that we are celebrating, we are worshiping a child in a manger who came in that humanity. But a child in a manger who is fully, mighty God. Does it make you say, wow, here's, here's the point. Christmas is the celebration of the Christ. Mighty God in human flesh. He said again, Christmas is the celebration of the Christ, mighty God in human flesh. One final quote that comes from Stephen Charnock, who is an old Puritan writer. And uh, I read this this past week in my study, and I texted it to Claire and said, What a quote! He writes, What a wonder! That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation, he writes, astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. May we be astonished by the reality that Jesus Christ is mighty God. Would you bow your heads just for a moment and close your eyes? I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you today, how He's used His Word in your life.